Good afternoon. I guess we'll get started. Resume. Um, we'll have about 30 minutes now uh, with Representative Kevin Brady, and the uh, title of the segment here now is Spend Less, Owe Less, Grow the Economy. Uh, I'm Mark Perry, and I'm a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm also on the faculty at the University of Michigan in Flint. I teach economics and finance, and I came here, it was supposed to be for just one semester in the fall of 2009 on a sabbatical, and I haven't gone back yet full time, so I was so energized by being out here and attending events like this, so I'll be here through at least the end of the year, and also working at the American Enterprise Institute, and I write every day on a, the Carpe Diem blog on economics. Uh, I'll introduce uh, Congressman Kevin Brady. He's the representative from the Texas 8th Congress Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's been there since 1997. Congressman Brady is vice chairman of the Joint Economic Committee, which is responsible for reviewing our nation's economic policies. And he's a senior member of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee, which has jurisdiction over two-thirds of the federal budget, including issues such as taxes, Social Security, Medicare, international trade, and welfare. On the Ways and Means Committee, Brady serves as chairman of the Trade Subcommittee and as a member on the Social Security Subcommittee. Congressman Brady also holds the Republican leadership post of Deputy Minority Whip. Prior to his election in Congress, Kevin worked as a Chamber of Commerce executive for 18 years and served six years in the Texas House of Representatives. Please join me in welcoming uh, Congressman Kevin Brady. Mark, thank you for the kind introduction, and so much. Uh, thank you so much too to Cato for hosting uh, this event. The timing of it could not be better, as we really sort of debate the direction of the country and how best both control spending and grow the economy at the same time. That's what I would like to talk about today. I'm also honored to be on a program with uh, Senators Bob Corker and Mike Lee, uh, my fellow Texan, uh, former Senator Phil Graham, and distinguished academics such as Vito Tanzi and Richard Vetter. Uh, I'd like to begin by quoting the organizer of this conference, Dan Mitchell, uh, who said, deficits and debt are the symptoms. Spending is the disease. Treat the disease and the symptoms will go away. Uh, it's important for everyone to understand the United States uh, has uh, a fiscal crisis because of excessive federal spending and that constraining the growth of federal spending is a solution. Several months ago, I asked the Republican staff of the Joint Economic Committee to sort of analyze and survey a body of uh, economic work, published economic literature, on fiscal consolidations. Fiscal consolidation is not a phrase uh, used so often in America, but uh, has in Europe and other parts of the world for quite uh, a while. And these are programs designed to reduce a government's budget deficits and stabilize the government debt as a percentage of their economy. And I asked them to study the results of such programs in other developed countries, our competitors around the world, um, over the last four decades. And the result of that analysis is a report that we re recently released called Spend Less, Owe Less, Grow the Economy, which I'd like to go through with you fairly br briefly. But before we do, and, and before I summarize the report's finding, let me show you two charts. I'm going to keep John busy today because we're getting paid by the chart. Um, we'll see how after the government shutdown that works. Um, uh, we asked uh, our folks to take a look at the last four decades in the United States to track government spending at the federal level versus job creation uh, along Main Street, 
private sector employment. As you can tell, the, the blue line is federal expenditures. The red line is job growth. Uh, what it shows is uh, over the past four decades, uh, there is no relationship between federal spending and job growth along Main Street. In fact, for each of those four decades, there's a negative correlation between them. Let's look at the next chart. We then tracked over the last uh, four, uh, 40 years um, private business investment and job creation in the private sector. And as you can tell, the blue line is private uh, uh, fixed uh, business investment. And what it shows, obviously, is a direct correlation. And, and this type of investment is very simple. It is when businesses invent, invest in new equipment, new software, new buildings. What it shows is that businesses along Main Street grow. There is no substitute for this private business investment, not stimulus, uh, not rebates, and not even shovel-ready projects are a, a substitute uh, for, um, for private business investment. And while there is great debate about the impact of stimulus, what we do know is that in the past two years, after having spent uh, over $800 billion, in America we have 2 million fewer jobs than when the stimulus began. We were told if we went on that spending spree, the unemployment rate this month would be 6.8 percent. Uh, we are, as a nation, a wildly uh, uh, off uh, 7 million jobs in projections after the stimulus um, uh, occurred. So there is, in my belief, uh, no substitute for business investment in creating jobs and um, uh, in getting the economy going. As to the report on fiscal consolidation, uh, there's two criteria by which economists judge these fiscal consolidation programs. One, do these programs actually reduce the government budget deficits? Do they stabilize the level of what a country owes as a percentage of their economy? This is the, uh, the success criterion. And secondly, do the programs boost economic growth and job creation? This is known as the growth criterion. Um, as for the success criterion, spend less, owe less, grow less uh, provides clear and convincing evidence that if a government wants to succeed in reducing its budget deficit and stabilizing its debt, it has to restrain spending. Uh, Albert uh, Alessina and Sylvia Ardagna, both of whom are distinguished economics professors from Harvard, found 21 instances between 1970 and 2007 where 10 of America's international competitors successfully reduced their government debt-to-GDP ratio by 4.5 percentage points or more based predominantly or entirely on spending reductions. Uh, Andrew Biggs, uh, Kevin Hassett, Michael Jensen, all of whom are from AEI, found that successful f fiscal consolidations, in fact, and we may have a chart on that, John. AEI's economists... Yeah, took a look at uh, these fiscal consolidation programs internationally uh, and determined that the countries that were successful in reducing their deficits and stabilizing, reducing uh, their debt, um, there was a difference between them. Countries that were successful in do that, did, doing that relied principally on spending cuts in order to do it. The countries that were unsuccessful in achieving that relied, at least in a balanced approach, on tax increases as well as spending cuts. And I should uh, point out that even within the successful programs, that 15% revenue increases were not 
from tax increases. Often they were from other non-tax sources, such as privatizing government-owned enterprises, asset sales, and user fees. So countries with successful programs on how to reduce their, their debt not only relied on spending cuts, uh, they did not increase taxes, especially marginal income tax rates or rates on business or uh, capital. While spending reductions were important uh, to, to successful budget deficit reductions, uh, spending reductions are even more important for achieving the growth criteria, for getting the economy moving. Uh, for example, John. Neighboring Canada uh, shrank its total government spending by 12.8 percentage points of the GDP between 1994 and 2006 and boosted its annual economic growth from under 1% to a pretty robust 3.4% average over the next 12 years. You can see the, the growth in that chart there. Sweden, their economy was actually shrinking uh, in the early 1990s, after reducing its government spending by over 11 percentage points of GDP, Sweden's negative growth economy revived to an average of 3.5% uh, over see, about a 10-year uh, period. Uh, New Zealand did the same. New De Zealand did the same. Fairly robust economy. Uh, deficits in spending grew. They... Uh, they um, uh, readjusted uh, their spending and revived uh, a fairly strong economic growth. Uh, and, and one point uh, I want to make, these countries, uh, Sweden, Canada, New Zealand, uh, they're not alone. Uh, Alicina and Ardagna found 26 episodes in nine developed countries, countries with developed economies like ours, where reducing government budget deficits and debt through spending cuts provided a large boost to their economic growth in the first three years after they began their fiscal consolidation. In fact, the average growth for those countries was not a minor increase in economic growth. They shot the top quarter of developed countries in economic growth. So uh, spending cuts translated to economic growth. That's perhaps uh, the most important finding uh, of the report. Uh, as you know, while most economists agree countries that reduce their deficits and debt boost their economic growth over the long term, what this report shows is analyzing these economic studies, reducing federal spending can boost economic growth and job creation in the short term uh, as well. And the reason, I think, is fairly common sense, as these studies show. Uh, what happened was businesses uh, no longer expected the government to levy large tax increases in the future. Uh, to pay for excessive spending, so private business investment grew. They invested in the buildings, equipment, software, and as we know, that jobs, uh, drives job uh, creation. Uh, secondly, households also recognizing that they would have more permanent disposable income in the future without facing those higher tax increases felt comfortable in their spending, and they began buying larger ticket items such as homes uh, and automobiles. And... Um, a point I would like to make, because it raises itself immediately, is so what type of spending cuts create this type of growth? One key point, not all spending cuts are the same. 
when it comes to job creation. What these uh, economic studies showed that if you want to grow the uh, jobs in the short term and job creation to maximize it, the spending reductions must be large, credible, and difficult to reverse. Spending cuts must be large, credible, and difficult to reverse once made. The savings that produce the greatest economic growth uh, include right-sizing the government workforce um, and its uh, compensation, eliminating duplicative programs and agencies, eliminating subsidies to businesses, and reforming and reducing transfer payments to individuals. So they're right-sized like a business, right-sized their workforce, eliminated, eliminated the programs that duplicate and waste money. They eliminated the subsidies to businesses and reformed their entitlements. And in the area of entitlements, what I thought was interesting was the study found evidence of strong economic growth uh, from reforming the government pension and health care plans to make them sustainable and solvent, even when the reforms were phased in over time and didn't affect existing beneficiaries. So programs that tackled entitlements in a credible way, even if they didn't touch those on it today and phased in those reforms, had the effect of growing the economy or helping boost the economy in the short term. Our point uh, is that ample real-life data proves there are significant economic growth and job creation benefits that accrue from reducing spending and reforming entitlement programs to restore their sustainability for future generations. Earlier this week, uh, the budget chairman, Paul Ryan, unveiled his path to prosperity, um, uh, unveiled it uh, Tuesday. Uh, it clearly meets the test, um, the spending reduction test, that must be large, credible, and difficult to reverse once made to boost economic growth. Uh, Congressman Ryan's budget tackles the medical entitlements that are driving federal spending higher. Uh, it attacks corporate welfare by phasing out government guarantees to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, eliminates subsidies for green energy, and reduces ag subsidies by $30 billion over 10 years. His budget rolls back non-security discretionary spending to its 2008 level and then freezes it for five years. Uh, part of that freeze includes adopting a number of the recommendations from the President's uh, Fiscal uh, uh, Commission to eliminate waste and achieve real savings, for example, by reducing non-defense federal auto fleets by 20 percent and selling surplus real estate. Uh, Congressman Ryan's budget eliminates agencies and programs identified by the GAO recently as wasteful and duplicative. That alone saves nearly $100 billion over the decade. And Chairman Ryan's budget reduces the federal workforce by 10% gradually the next five years, mainly through attrition, by hiring only one new federal employee for every three who leaves or retires. Uh, Chairman Ryan's budget uh, freezes federal pay through 2015, and together those proposals save about $375 billion over the next 10 years. Moreover, uh, Congressman Ryan's budget envisions a pro-growth tax reform that lowers the top income tax rate for both individuals and corporations to 25 percent. So in summary, uh, Congressman Ryan's budget is a fiscal consolidation plan that would grow the economy. Um, as I conclude, I, one measure of this report's uh, influence is that Dr. Paul Krugman has repeatedly attacked it in his blog and in his column in the New York Times, I always like to think if he's attacking me, I'm on the right track. Um, 
Dr. Krugman, uh, yeah, well, he, he claimed the authors of this report were clearly aware that the evidence no longer supports their position, that restraining government spending can boost private business investment, economic growth, and job creation, because, quote, they added weasel words to cover themselves. They added weasel words to cover themselves, like confidence effects can boost GDP growth rather than will boost GDP growth. Uh, and I, I can't help but thinking, surely Dr. Krugman understands the benefits from good economic policies can be overwhelmed uh, by external events in the short term. For example, our economy uh, after 9-11 affected by that, the Australian New Zealand economies slowed by the Asian financial crisis of the late 90s. Uh, so uh, the weasel words to which Dr. Krugman refers um, uh, recognizes that reality. And in fact, the studies were so diverse and so varied and eliminated a number of those external factors as it went about its uh, work that just the sheer number of these studies and the credibility of the economists that did it should provide to us in America as we look at our future path, which direction to go, should give us great confidence that cutting federal spending will not only help resolve our nation's fiscal problems, but also help American families by boosting economic growth and job creation. In closing, uh, I'd like to add a, an observation about the United States. Uh, many uh, of our Democratic friends on Capitol Hill are very fond of uh, identifying the uh, the late 1990s is a period of rapid uh, job growth in America. What is often left out of that discussion is that the size of the federal government relative to the economy shrank during that period. From fiscal year 1992 to 2001, federal outlays declined by just under 4% of our economy, from 22% roughly to 18.2%. The civilian workforce also shrank from a little over 2.3 million to under 2 uh, uh, million, a 10% reduction at the time. And so those today who say any cut in the federal government will damage the economy can probably look just to a decade or so ago to see that that is not necessarily the case. In fact, uh, in this re uh, recovery, with $2 trillion of, of capital sitting on the sidelines, it's critical for us to restore the confidence for business investors to allow that capital flow back into our economy to create the jobs that, in fact, uh, we are so long overdue in pursuing. Uh, so far, President Obama, I think, has stressed the risk of reducing America's deficits and debts right now, but he ignores the risk of delay. Uh, for America's economic future, it really is time to spend less and owe less. Uh, that is the lesson of our international competitors. Uh, it's a lesson we ought to eat, uh, heed as a nation. So, Mr. Perry, with that, uh, I'd be happy to stop and take some questions at this time. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, we've got about five minutes for a couple questions. Um, back there in the, in the row, right back there, yeah. Uh, I'm Mary Chris McGowan. Thank you for taking my question. I had a question from even from the beginning. Uh, we have been talking about lowering spending, and I really believe that we should do that. And we quoted uh, going down to 22% or 19% even better for, as a percentage of GDP. But I didn't hear anything of what would be the minimum percentage of revenues as percentage of GDP to accomplish our goals. 
Uh, you have a graph with a 15% there, but I don't see any kind of a study for our economy right now. Thank you. You know, there have been a number of, uh, of studies done on what is the optimal size of government that actually encourages the optimal size of the economy. Uh, those figures range normally in the 17.5 to 18% range. Historically, our revenue's been in around about 19 or so percent historically in the United States. And interestingly enough, no matter what Washington does to adjust the interest rates up or the tax rates up or down, the same amount of revenue tends to come in. People and businesses adjust their behavior to go with higher tax rates. So the revenues that are always projected to come in usually fall short. My view is that optimal uh, size of government ought to be somewhere in that 18% range. Um, and we ought to, um, even with a, an aging workforce, I think, or an aging population, I think that's possible. Uh, uh, Congressman Ryan's budget, if you've looked at the long term, comes very close to those levels, goes to and below uh, our uh, national average over time. What are your thoughts? Are, do you think that that goal of that range is, uh, is an appropriate one? Really, I, I don't think revenue is a variable as relevant as spending. I really believe that. I think that spending has the second connotation of uh, helping with economic growth. So it doesn't matter really if revenue falls below, let's say, 18%. That's my personal opinion. Because the spending, lower spending, you create economic growth, and that will compensate for any losses or potential losses of 1% or 2% in revenues. That's what I think. Right. Thank you. Yeah, right behind, uh, right there. Rick, um, are there any major tax breaks that for that ship jobs overseas? And what's your view on the uh, currency devaluation in China? You know, um, I think we have a uh, terrible tax code for competing and winning overseas. Um, we are uh, one of the few uh, competitive countries with a... Uh, a worldwide taxing system. Uh, we, um, just a few years ago, that puts at, us at a competitive disadvantage in a major way. We are, in effect, double taxed uh, in many of our instances. Why? It's why we have a very complicated corporate tax code to try to deal with that, but it fails, and I think, in making us competitive also. Uh, our competitors have ripped a page from our playbook on lower corporate taxes, where we once led our OECD um, colleagues by a pretty healthy point. We now trail them in the corporate tax uh, rates by a pretty healthy amount. Um, and so I think it's critical that we uh, reform our tax code, especially uh, in international tax uh, area. Congressman uh, Dave Camp, Chairman of the Ways and Means, has made that a priority for his committee. You're going to see uh, over the balance of this year a number of hearings held where we identify where we, what the consequences of, um, uh, of that tax code, what that consequences are and how we uh, deal with it. So, yeah. Oh, on currency, um, I think it, uh, it grants China a competitive advantage, but it is not the silver bullet I think many make it out to be. As chairman of the Trade Subcommittee, um, and there's no question uh, that uh, uh, the, the Chinese currency needs to appreciate over time. We're going to continue to keep pressure on them and work with the administration to continue to pressure them as well. On the Trade Subcommittee, though, I can tell you that uh, we're no longer going to look at China just through a currency vacuum. 
We think there are a number of issues that, uh, that impede our ability to uh, sell our goods and services into China from uh, indigenous, indigenous innovation, directed subsidies, lending, uh, the restrictions on rare earth uh, minerals, uh, all of uh, which are pretty effective non-tariff barriers to the U.S. Uh, we're also not only going to push them to become a responsible stakeholder uh, in the global trading system, but we're uh, urging the White House to, to restart uh, negotiations on a bilateral investment treaty, uh, which were stopped. Uh, we think that's important to provide our uh, investors protections overseas in the Chinese market. So bottom line is the Chinese currency is China currency issue is important, but it is not the only important issue in dealing with that relationship. One more? Hi, Senator. We have time for one more? Okay. Oh, okay. Down in the front row? Sorry, I didn't see you. We keep hearing all the time about a 14 point $3 trillion uh, national debt. But what about the actual national debt when we include what they have taken out of the Social Security Trust Fund and misappropriated so that we will have to collect that tax again? I've been drawing that tax for 27 years because I'm 91 years old. So I've taken out one hell of a lot more than I put in. The system has got to be changed. I have two great-grandchildren in college, and, well... Can I take you to Capitol Hill for just a minute? Uh, and march you around the country, um, be because you get it. Uh, those unfunded liabilities, obviously unsustainable, they're, and they're almost too big uh, to imagine uh, in cost. Uh, that's why I think... Uh, Somewhere out of this place, being told that that debt is or something in the order of $15.3 yeah. which is would make our national debt twice what they keep coming over the system. Yes, sir. Um, I'm proud of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Paul Ryan's budget. It is an adult conversation on our entitlements, uh, on Medicare and Medicaid especially, and sets the table for, uh, for uh, uh, Social Security reform as well. We can't, I, we have more charts to show you, but you've heard it from others, you'll hear it from Senator Graham as well, uh, that uh, we can't keep ignoring these entitlements. One, to ignore them at all uh, uh, threatens them by themselves, but, but setting up a new system for those who are 54 and younger uh, to uh, make those programs sustainable. We can't keep putting that out, uh, off. I was disappointed it wasn't in the president's budget, that there's been no real proposal anywhere on Capitol Hill from our colleagues across the aisle, but now's the time to move on those. And, uh, and Paul Ryan has laid out, I think, some awfully solid, sound approaches to do it. Thank you uh, very much for having me here today. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Senator Graham's uh, um, uh, comments as well. Uh, he uh, was key to me um, running for and serving uh, in Congress and uh, still uh, one of the brightest minds around. I really appreciate Cato's uh, leadership on uh, fiscal responsibility in this country. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman Brady. All right. All right. Thank you very much. All right.
going to speak after. Yeah, I think he's, he's here. here. Yeah, that's right. I think you're here. Well, I think we can go uh, right ahead and get uh, started. It's my, uh, I'm Chris Edwards, Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. I'm also editor of Cato's website, downsizinggovernment.org. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce the junior U.S. Senator from Utah, Mike Lee. Uh, Mike is a, is a young man, but he comes to the Senate with a distinguished career uh, as an attorney and constitutional scholar, uh, both in private practice uh, and as, a, as an assistant U.S. attorney, as Governor John Huntsman's general counsel, and as a clerk to Judge Sam Alito on the U.S. Supreme Court. The senator has only been in office a few months, and he is already a leader in promoting a reduction in the size and scope of the federal government. I know the senator's staff, for example, has been hard at work uh, the last couple of months pouring through the federal budget and finding programs to cut and eliminate. Uh, the senator today is going to talk about his proposed amendment to the Constitution to balance the federal budget, uh, which has the full support of Senate Republicans. Uh, balanced budget amendment uh, has actually been debated on and off in Congress all the way back to 1936. In 1982, the Senate passed a BBA by a vote of 69 to 31, but it failed in the House. In 1995, the House passed a BBA by a vote of 300 to 132, but the measure failed in the Senate. Well, today, more than ever, uh, I think it's pretty obvious we need some sort of legal clamp on out-of-control federal spending in Washington. So maybe this time around, a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution will succeed. Senator Lee is a believer in limited government. Uh, his speech to the Federalist Society last fall uh, was really outstanding, and it uh, impressed me watching it that he's going to do great things uh, in the Senate over the next few years, and so we're delighted uh, today to uh, have Senator Lee come and speak to us. Thank you for that kind introduction, and thanks to each of you for being here to uh, listen to me today. You, he alluded to my age a minute ago, so I, I, I thought I should address that briefly. I do sometimes get carded uh, at the Senate. As a devout Mormon, I don't drink, and so I don't get carded in bars, so it's nice to get carded somewhere. Uh, sometimes they look at me, uh, the, the security at the Capitol, and think that a, and, and, an errant staffer or page has wandered out of his or her place and and stop me. So it does give me some satisfaction when I get carded uh, in that regard. Um, I am only 39 years old, but I read at the level of a 40-year-old. And uh, <laughs> I'm told that's quite impressive, uh, but I'm, I, I'll be turning 40 this summer, about a week after Marco Rubio uh, uh, turns 40. So I've got to bump that level up to 41. I'll be working on that over the summer. Um, we, we are in a situation in the United States that is unprecedented, people like to say, look, we've been in difficult circumstances before, and that's true, we have. But I do believe, as a, as a popular book uh, suggests, that this time it's different. Uh, this time we, we have a national debt that is fast approaching $15 trillion, which is an awful lot of money. It's an amount of money that a lot of Americans don't make in a whole year. <laughs> It's an amount of money that, when divided by 300 million Americans, works out to about $50,000 a head. Uh, depending on how you do the math, one could argue that it works out to about $150,000 per American wage earner. Uh, this is an enormous sum. And our debt-to-gross domestic product ratio 
is, depending on which metric you follow, uh, the, arguably it is fast approaching 100%. Now, one of the reasons this matters is that there are very reliable studies that have shown in economy after economy that when a, a nation's uh, public debt crosses the 90% of G debt to GDP threshold, the sort of laws of physics, the laws of gravity, you might say, that affect the economy start to change. Economic growth can be slowed by as much as half uh, of where it would otherwise be in a particular year. In an economy as large as ours, this could make a difference of as many as a million jobs in a year. Uh, this is not a hypothetical problem. This is not an abstract problem that will affect only future generations. This is a real immediate problem, especially when you consider what will happen just in the next few years unless we dramatically change the way we spend money in Washington. By the end of this decade, even according to fairly optimistic projections, we are likely to be paying about a trillion dollars every year just in interest on national debt. Our, our annual federal outlays right now are at about $3.7, $3.8 trillion. Now, 10 years from now, we'll be spending that much money just on interest coupled with entitlements. There won't be anything left for national defense or for the operations of government. It'll all be swallowed up um, before it even comes in. Uh, this is very dangerous. Now, it used to be that balancing the budget and uh, calls for fiscal restraint were something that were pitched quite predictably from the right. Uh, I believe that the time will come very soon when the calls will have to start to come both from the right and the left for fiscal responsibility. Because regardless of what government program you're most concerned about protecting, whether it's national defense on the one hand or whether it's entitlements on the other hand, you should be concerned about balancing the budget. You should be concerned about changing the way we spend, because if we don't do that, every single government program, every single one, will be placed in grave jeopardy. This reminds me a little bit of, uh, uh, of a story, a personal story that I'd like to share. Um, I lost my, both of my maternal grandparents uh, about five or six years ago. It was very close to them. They were in their mid-90s by the time they died. Um, uh, they, they were um, both a source of inspiration to me growing up and some of my closest personal friends. But they got to a point as they approached their mid-90s when we could see that their ability to operate their vehicle, a very lovely uh, Oldsmobile 98, not 1998, but that was the model of car. Uh, incidentally, both sets of my grandparents had Oldsmobile 98s. It was something about grandparents of that generation. They had to have one of those. We would increasingly see these um, broad scratches on the side of the car. And it turns out the more they drove, the more they were sideswiping cars. They were just getting older. They couldn't operate their vehicle quite the way that they could years earlier. And we, we, we loved them in their old age as much as we ever had before. And yet we knew that there were people all over town who were being threatened as to their physical safety and their property if we allowed them to continue operating their vehicle. 
we at one point had to have some very awkward discussions with them, and ultimately that resulted in our taking the keys to their beloved Oldsmobile 98 away from them, simply because although we loved them and we loved their ability to remain at liberty, to drive around town as they saw fit, to go to the grocery store, we couldn't justify the harm that they presented to other members of the community as they drove around because their, their senses had deteriorated to the point that they presented a real safety risk. I think Congress and the way it's been spending can fairly be analogized to my late grandparents. May they rest in peace. We, we love this government. We love the things that it does, that it stands for. And because we love it, and because we love those affected by it, we can't allow it to be in a position where it's harming other people. And unfortunately, just like my grandparents couldn't simply be told, you've got to be more careful, and thereafter be expected to, in fact, be more careful and be better drivers, Congress can't simply be told, again, you've got to be more careful. We have to put Congress in what I refer to as an economic straitjacket. The only way that I know of to do that, the only permanent, reliable, relatively foolproof way to do that involves a constitutional amendment. Now, there are other things that we can do and should do in the short term to get us there. But the reason I believe a constitutional amendment is necessary is because otherwise Congress has a tendency over time, when it comes time to make difficult decisions, to simply change the very laws that would otherwise require them to curtail spending. A hero of mine since I was in high school is uh, former Senator Phil Graham, who I'm pleased to see here today. I was a huge fan of the Graham-Rudman-Hollings legislation. It was uh, an absolute uh, genius piece of legislation. And I, I, I wish that Congress had stuck to the plan and Congress had not found a way around it because it would have worked. Legislation like that tends to work. It tends to work at least for a few years until it gets really difficult. That's why I believe we need a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. Let me tell you about the, the amendment that I have proposed and that has garnered the support of all 47 Republicans in the U.S. Senate. It, would, it says, in effect, that Congress may not spend more than it takes in in any given year, that, that outlays may not exceed revenues in any particular fiscal year. It also says that Congress may not spend more than 18 percent of gross domestic product in any given year. And in the most circumstances, the only way around that is for Congress to vote by a majority of two-thirds of both houses of Congress to approve noncompliance with that and a, and a particular um, uh, excess of the prescribed amounts for a particular year, making it possible but rare and very difficult for Congress to spend more than it takes in in a year. Now, the question sometimes arises, why 18 percent of GDP? We measured over a 40 to 50 year period the, the average of federal revenue to GDP, and we found that the average stood at just about 18 percent. And so in order to lock that in and see that it doesn't increase further, we thought that was a good place uh, uh, to lock it in. Incidentally, 100 years ago, we were spending only about 2 to 2.5 two percent of GDP at the federal level. That gradually but steadily rose. And until we got to where we are today, which is where we're spending more than 25 percent of GDP every year. That means out of every dollar that moves through the U.S. economy, more than a quarter gets diverted and sent to Washington, where it goes basically to die 
or in relative terms. It's not like where it moves into the private sector where you can anticipate that it will be invested and then it will have the same multiplier effect as it has elsewhere. The reason we need to do this is because ultimately spending restrictions, spending limitations get difficult to comply with. And when they get difficult to comply with, you want Congress not to have the ability simply to opt out. This tendency in Congress to opt out when it gets difficult reminds me of the famous quote uh, by, by St. Augustine, who said prior to his sainthood, Lord, grant me chastity, but not yet. Just don't make me do it now, because it's too hard right now. I'll do it later. We have to have Congress in a position where it can't simply opt out. Now, I believe you heard from my, my colleague, Senator Corker, a little while ago, who's, who's proposed the, uh, the Corper, Corker Cap Act. I applaud this approach, and I think it is a very positive step in the right direction. Uh, the, the Corker legislation is statutory rather than constitutional, and what it does is it sets up uh, what he describes as a 10-year glide path to bring us down to 20.6 percent of GDP per year in federal spending. Uh, it, it, it doesn't take it as low as I would like or, or as Bob Corker would like, but he wrote this in such a way as to maximize uh, the chances of getting something passed this year. And so uh, although I, I, it doesn't go as far as I would like it to, I applaud that effort. And I believe that both are necessary. A constitutional amendment takes several years to put in place. And the amendment that is now co-sponsored by all 47 Republicans in the Senate uh, would not take effect until five years following ratification by three-fourths of the states. So we would need a statutory provision in place to sort of set us on that glide path uh, so that uh, the, the shock to the system could more easily be absorbed uh, once the constitutional amendment fully kicked in. I do believe that America's best days are yet ahead of us. I do believe that the balanced budget amendment can pass and that, that it will pass, notwithstanding the fact that the cuts that have to be made are difficult. The fact that the balanced budget amendment takes several years to kick in makes it a little bit easier to remember what St. Augustine said and say, uh, you know, grant me chastity, but not yet. Grant me fiscal responsibility, but delay it for a few years. It gives Congress a few years to get its house in order. The American people overwhelmingly support a balanced budget amendment, and that's why I believe that you'll see, in addition to the 47 Republicans in the Senate, uh, you'll see a lot of Democrats joining ranks with us as well. We have to get to 67 votes. We're out to find those votes, and I hope that each of you will join me in calling those people out to have them join us, and then we'll move on to the House. Our best years may indeed be ahead of us, but we have to sometimes, in order to preserve things that we love and, and preserve the interests and the safety of others that might be harmed by those that we love, sometimes we have to take the keys away. And so I'm asking you to join me in helping us take the keys away from Congress in its pattern of perpetual deficit spending. Thank you very much. Yeah, I can follow the people in I think we've got uh, about five or ten minutes for questions. If there's questions for the, the senator, uh, right at the back near the door there. And wait for the microphone, uh, please. Thank you. Hi, Senator Lee. Uh, Michael Willey, Georgetown University. Um, on behalf of my generation and posterity, thank you very much for offering uh, this balanced budget amendment. I think it's got a real shot um, come next Congress. Um, do you agree with that? 
if the Republicans can make gains in the Senate, that we'll have a real shot to shame maybe some moderate Democrats next time around to get on board. Yes, I, I, th I think we do. And not only that, I think we have a real chance of getting some Democrats this time around. Again, the, the only question is which ones. A few weeks ago, I offered an amendment and attached the amendment to the patent reform legislation. It's called a sense of the Senate amendment, and it, it's basically a, a real-time snapshot poll taken within the Senate. Uh, the amendment said it is the sense of the Senate that we should adopt and the states should ratify a balanced budget amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, we ended up getting 58 votes uh, for that. So uh, 11 Democrats joined the Republicans in that effort in saying it's necessary. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I'll tell you that the exact language that we're producing was not in there. It simply said a balanced budget amendment. But there is substantial support for that. We think there's a good chance we can hold on to those 11 Democrats and that we could conceivably pick up nine more to get to that magical threshold of 67. Way at the back with the hat. <laughs> uh, Congressman Tom Price uh, told us at the Leadership Institute breakfast that even if the Ryan plan were adopted in whole, within the next 10 years, we would add six to seven trillion more dollars to the national debt. Would the credit markets still loan us money, uh, the T-bills, at 3.5 to 4 percent, if the debt increased up to the 20-odd trillion dollar level, uh, wouldn't we go over a cliff before then? And the second question is, what do you feel about welfare for farmers? Even Congressman Ryan has, has stated he believes that, that Washington should still continue to subsidize the welfare for farmers in his state. In response to the first question, no, I don't think we can continue to issue our debt instruments, uh, certainly not at current in interest rates, while simultaneously ad adding that many trillions of dollars to our national debt. A at some point, nobody knows when it's going to be, and those who purport to know are, are most reluctant to say because they don't want to create an immediate self-fulfilling prophecy. But at some point, people are going to stop buying our debt at current interest rates, and we'll have to raise the rate. And every time we raise the rate, by a point, that's going to cost us another, uh, well, a, a substantial amount of money. I, there are figures out there suggesting uh, that within a few years we, we could add uh, about $150 billion a year to our debt service obligations every time the interest rate ticks up by one point. So yeah, that, uh, that's a problem, and, and I, I don't believe we can continue issuing new debt uh, uh, under the same terms that we're now issuing it. And, and this, is, this is really where the rubber meets the, meets the road in a lot of things. This has a lot to do with why this is not simply a hypothetical problem or a future problem or an academic uh, problem that you can analyze in a vacuum. This is a real um, uh, practical problem that affects everything from how much you pay uh, to the bank in terms of your, your mortgage payment to whether or not you're going to be able to start up a new business with a with a, a business loan because it will inevitably affect interest rates uh, everywhere, and that affects everything else. Uh, with regard to part two of your question, no, I, I don't support agricultural subsidies. I am a firm believer in, uh, in, in the free market economy. I'm a big fan of Henry Hazlitt. I'm a big fan of the Austrian School of Economics, and I believe that uh, uh, the, the, the market economy functions best when we stay the heck out of it.
back right behind the yeah, barrier. It's on? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Lee. Um, based upon your remarks and based upon um, all the tensions and differences in the Congress today and everybody digging their heels in and not being um, willing to work together, as I see it, <clears throat> um, and one side wanting to uh, not do this, one side wanting to do that, you know, getting a budget in place and with new members, will there be a government shutdown or will you all be able to stand up and act like adults and work this thing out and uh, keep our country going? Until a few hours ago, I was very much of the mindset that we would be able to avert a government shutdown. I can't say that anymore. I can't say this afternoon what I could say this morning. Uh, there are a few reasons for this, uh, but First and foremost, I can say that the President and the Democrats in the Senate planted three seeds that I think are leading inevitably, inexorably, to a government shutdown. The first one was while the Democrats still had control of Congress uh, after the election but before the new Congress took power, um, they refused or declined to pass a full-year budget for fiscal year 2011. The second was once the new Congress uh, once the new Congress came to town and started its operations, uh, the President and the Democrats in the Senate chose to operate based on a series of continuing resolutions. We're approaching, I believe, now what would be our seventh consecutive continuing resolution. Uh, and then the, the third seed was planted just a few hours ago by the President of the United States, who announced anticipatorily that he would veto the continuing resolution passed by the House of Representatives this afternoon. Now, the Republicans willing to bend a little on the defense spending. There are many bases, and I've worked with the military, there are many bases that we can close. The one thing that's holding this up is the Republicans' inability to cave a little on defense spending. Not, but it's not yeah. not paying our men and women in, in service and the wars we're in now, but that, when you said the third thing the president will not, is gonna veto, it's because of defense spending. Are you willing to back off or negotiate, come to the table, be open-minded, and, and talk with both sides of the aisle, because I'm sure they're Democrats, and not have the government shut down? I assume you're referring to the fact that the, the continuing resolution passed by the House this afternoon uh, added new spending to the defense package Correct. rather than cutting. And defense spending is, is very large, yep. and like our um, Medicaid and Medicare. I follow so, you. I follow you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, look, in the past, you've had a lot of Republicans who have said, um, we've got to cut everything except defense. And you've had others who have said, we've got to cut everything, but you can't uh, even think about changing entitlements. I, I think people on both sides of the aisle now recognize that we have to cut everything. Everything has to be on the table, and, and nothing can be exempt from consideration. I'm one of those people, and I think I'm in the majority in that regard. Um, so if the question is whether I would be willing to put that on the table, absolutely. If the question is whether I think at this moment we can avoid a government shutdown set to begin tomorrow at midnight, no, I don't. 
the president has made that impossible. Maybe one more question uh, down front here. I served as a counsel in the House of Representatives for 14 years. And because of uh, redistricting and other things, there are probably 150 liberal Democrats in the House. And I wonder what your analysis is if, if we can't get two-thirds for your very fine amendment uh, on balancing the budget in Congress. What can the states do to pressure Congress, uh, to force Congress to, uh, to confront this issue uh, if Congress doesn't want to do it itself? That's a great question. One of the things that the states can do is uh, submit resolutions, and, and I'm actually proposing that they do this, submit joint resolutions from each state legislature saying, we want and expect you to pass a balanced budget amendment. The reason I like that idea is that it's a, it's a, it's a th sort of a veiled threat. You know, states do have another option uh, that, that no one likes to talk about under Article 5 of the Constitution, calling for a constitutional convention. I personally don't support that, uh, mostly because the last time we had a constitutional convention, uh, we, we went in intending to amend one document, and we came out with an entirely new document. I like that document. I love it. And I don't want the same thing to happen now. But the states can uh, make that thinly veiled threat by passing a resolution saying, please act now. And if you act now, we will promptly ratify any amendment that you propose. Uh, that will have quite an effect. Uh, I believe that the 17th Amendment and possibly the 16th Amendment, I, I, I think there were others as well, but I, those two in particular, both of which were, uh, both of which took effect in 1913, were passed under circumstances in which the states were starting to call for a convention. Congress not wanting a convention uh, instead acted the, way, the same way that we've amended the Constitution all 27 times, which is proposal by two-thirds of both houses and ratification by three-fourths of the states. So I think we can gain the benefits of that if the state legislatures will start acting, signaling that they will ratify it and signaling that they expect Congress to do it. The overwhelming majority of our state legislatures balance their budgets every single year. And they expect Congress to do the same as well they should. And so I hope that they will do that. Thank, Thank you very much, Senator. And up next, Senator Graham. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go straight on. I am very honored today to present to you Senator Phil Graham. <clears throat> now, if the truth be known, I've always been a bit jealous of Phil. Um, we both started off as <clears throat> academics about the same time. I came to Washington, and I was chief economist of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and Phil came as a congressman. And I still remember my first real substantive meeting with him in 1981. And back then, Ronald Reagan was trying to get the uh, uh, tax cuts passed. And the Democrats held a majority in Congress. Now, for those of you who are uh, younger, less than 40, you probably don't realize we used to have Democrats in Congress that believed in less government and free markets. 
And uh, there weren't very many of them, but Phil was uh, naturally a leader of the crowd. And I remember going over to sit down and start working with him some. And I was quite amazed because he was a Democrat, but he was very smart. <laughs> um, fortunately, he soon became a Republican. And uh, he went on to become a superstar, first in the Congress, then, of course, in the Senate from Texas, and was known for his big financial reform measures um, where we deregulated rather than increased regulation. We made markets freer and worked better uh, when he was chairman of the Senate Banking Committee. And, of course, he's probably best known for Graham Rudman, which was a mechanism for actually controlling spending, and it did. And during the late 90s, when Phil was in the Senate and Dick Armey was in the House, both economists, things worked better. And Phil was particularly the intellectual leader, which leads me to believe my favorite amendment for the Constitution is to prohibit lawyers and only require we elect economists, because it goes much better when we have economists in the Senate. I, re I realize New York would elect Paul Krugman, but a few of those we can tolerate, as long as we got the Bill Niskanens and Dan Mitchells and uh, Richard Vedders and the Phil Grahams. <clears throat> well, anyway, he went on, of course, to be the superstar. He uh, ran for president. I was all in favor of that, but most people didn't understand what economists did. And, uh, you know, so it's, it was a difficult sell. I went off into business, but then he did it much more successfully because he became vice chairman of UBS Investment Bank, where he is today. And so I am proud to introduce a true American hero, a great guy, whose greatest crowning achievement was to marry a beautiful woman who is smarter than he is, and very accomplished, and much more personable. But we like Phil anyway. <laughs> Wendy Graham's husband. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Um, I left uh, Washington almost nine years ago, and I generally give Washington a wide berth. Uh, there's nothing worse than an old guy who leaves who won't leave. And uh, I have, for the last nine years, uh, worked in finance out of New York. But I'm very happy to be back to do something with Cato. I've been asked to talk about the old Graham Rudman. And so why don't I just begin by talking about where it came from and relate that to where we are now. And I'd like to talk about. Uh, what I think the lessons of the whole process were. Uh, and uh, then uh, I just want to say a little bit about the crisis we face. I'd like to try to do it briefly so that I can spend most of my time trying to answer your questions. Uh, I came to the Senate in 1985. And uh, while the deficit problem was a big time problem, uh, the economy was quite good. It was morning in America. And so no one was paying any attention to the deficit. And so in trying to figure out how to force some action on the deficit, 
uh, I came up with the idea of Graham Rudman. Um, it became law basically because you had a problem. People recognized it. Most people in American government didn't want to do anything about it. But nobody wanted to admit that. And so we had reached sort of a stalemate where each party could say, I'm for dealing with a problem, but I won't deal with it the way the other party wants to deal with it. And so I was able, along with a lot of other people, uh, to put Congress in a position where they had to answer the question, uh, not were they willing to do it the way the other party would do it, but were they willing to do it anyway? And uh, in that context, uh, the law proved irresistible and uh, it became law. Um, I think the circumstances today um, are even uh, better for a reform of this kind. Uh, the deficit is a percentage of GDP is twice as big. But most importantly, we're having a terribly disappointing recovery. If the economy had recovered at the rate it did in 1982 under the Reagan recovery, we'd have 14 million more jobs today, and per capita income would be $4,200 higher. So I think there is a greater perception of a crisis today uh, than we had in 1985 when Graham Rudman was adopted. Now, how do I see this all unfolding as we go forward? Well, I think it's increasingly clear that we are going to have stalemate on this issue. But I don't think either party can admit that they're unwilling to deal with a problem. And so what that always produces in a legislative process is a compromise that basically is equivalent to agree to deal with a problem, to set out a structure for dealing with it, and to leave the actual way or pathway that is chosen unspecified as you begin the process. I, it's easy to criticize this approach. Plain truth is, it's the way we act in our individual lives. We decide to do something, and then we do it. Um, I think that there are a lot of ideas being discussed, many of which are better than the Graham-Rudman-type approach. But quite think, frankly, I don't think any of them are going to be adopted. Uh, if I had my choice between a Graham-Rudman-type approach that targeted the deficit and a Corker-type approach that targeted spending, uh, it's easy to conclude that since I believe the problem is a spending problem, uh, that I would choose the Corker approach. But why would the president? Why would the Democrats? The Corker approach basically defines the solution before you've had a commitment to deal with a problem. And as a result, I think there's no significant probability that it could be adopted. In the end, why Graham Rudman was adopted was that in 1985, I could look at Graham Rudman and see spending cuts. 
Ted Kennedy could look at Graham Rudman and see tax increases. Beauty was in the eye of the beholder, and as a result, not once but quite twice, Congress committed itself to the process. Now, did it work? Well, I would say a qualified yes. In the five years before Graham Rudman, uh, federal spending grew at 8.7% a year. In the four years after Graham Rudman, federal spending grew by 3.2% total spending. That was the slowest growth in spending uh, since the 1950s. Also, we adopted an entitlement during the Graham-Rudman uh, constraint. It was the first entitlement in American history that people actually had to pay for. And once it was adopted, the public hated it. And they protested so violently against it that Congress repealed it. Um, so I think it's a process that has worked. What are the lessons from Graham Rudman? I, I think the lessons are as follows. One, give up the notion of being able to build a four-sided fort and pull up the drawbridge and go to sleep. It's not in the cards that we can ever or will ever design any kind of process that will allow us to do that. As Jefferson said, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And he wasn't talking about the Indians coming over the mountains or the British coming across the ocean. He was talking about vigilance against the enemy of freedom, which is government. Um, and whatever we do, I think the best way to look at any type process like Graham Rudman is not a four-sided fort that guarantees success, but it's something like a good stone wall to your back in a gunfight. It's useful, it can affect the outcome, uh, but it doesn't guarantee the outcome. Um, I believe that in the end, uh, this Congress will move toward a Graham-Rudman type uh, uh, law. I, my guess is it'll end up on a debt ceiling as a compromise. And what it will mean is that we will have to begin in 2012 in earnest to make these decisions. Graham Rudman has the, the very nice uh, uh, quality that it gives legislators an excuse. They can be for all these programs and vote against them. They can want all these things, but they can't provide them and they can blame whoever the poor devils will be whose names will end up on the law and not themselves. And so I think it is a useful process. I feel pretty confident that something like it will happen. I've worked on sort of what the weaknesses of the old law were uh, to try to at least have a set of ideas if, in fact, Congress goes in this direction. Uh, and my guess is they will. So um, let me just throw it open. I would be very happy to try to answer any questions, uh, talk about this or whatever else you might want to talk about. Yeah. It's my job. Who went away with our mic? Get back in here, boy. <laughs> Up there. <laughs> Up. 
Yeah. Since you're in the banking business, um, speak right into it. Yeah, since since Congress, you're in the banking, I could hear well, but people yelled at me all those years, and so <laughs> I don't hear too good. Um, what is your view on China's currency devaluation? How significant do you think that is in the trade deficit and on the TARP? How bad do you think it would have been if we didn't bail out uh, the financial companies? Well. Let me say on the currency issue that if, if as an economist I had to estimate whether the RMB is undervalued or overvalued, I would say it is probably undervalued. And I would say that China would benefit by allowing market forces to determine the value of its currency. But I would have to say as a citizen of the greatest nation in the history of the world, it's kind of unbecoming of us to spend all of our time whining about what we want other people to do instead of dealing with our own problems. Uh, whatever the value of their currency is, it is their currency. And there's a lot we could do uh, for our own currency, including sound policies. And one advantage of being so critical of the Chinese is they can't vote. Uh, so that, that's sort of my response to it. Also, as an economist, it's clear to me that there is no guarantee that a rise in the value of the RMB would improve our balance of uh, trade, balance of payments. Um, and uh, also, of all the relationships in the world economically, the one with China is the most important. And I think we ought to be focusing on things like encouraging them to grant more freedom uh, to employ the market system uh, in a more and more uh, a virulent form. And this is just not an issue that I think is worthy of us or wasting, or, uh, uh, and I think it's a waste of our time. What was the question on TARP? I don't know. I mean, the bottom line is there was no way you could know in advance how what would have happened. Um, and uh, I don't know to this day what would have happened. Uh, markets are more resilient uh, than they normally get credit. Uh, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, way in the back. Thanks a lot, Senator. Um, you mentioned giving a wide berth uh, to Washington. So if we could just mine that part of uh, my first question. Uh, the world has changed a good bit in the nine years since you were here in office. Could you just sort of reflect on the, the way that uh, the, eco the, the global economic climate has changed within that almost decade, the, um, uh, the thought about the United States currency sort of falling, uh, uh, the value of dollar-denominated assets, uh, fluctuation in the markets. You know, there was a time when you were here when, uh, would, when a brick was seen pretty much as a weapon. Well, it's, it's a different sort of weapon now. It's an economic force, an economic block. So could you just sort of reflect on how the world has changed in investment and economics over the past? 10 years. And the second question, speaking to, uh, to a man of Texas, a, a state that is wildly um, obsessed with sports, 
Have you any comment on uh, a possible NFL lockout? <laughs> Owners fighting over $9 well, billion. Even though I've been out of government for nine years, I haven't totally changed my view that you shouldn't say much about things you don't know anything about. Uh, that served me well here, and I better stick with it on the NFL. Um, look, what I'm worried about, most worried about, is that I think uh, the last two or three years have seen a dramatic change in American government. Um, we not only have a weak recovery, but it's clear that we're now on a totally different growth path than we were uh, in 2007. I mean, if there's one principle in, in world economics that's clearly established, it is that the economic system of a nation is a primary determinant of its success. And in America, our system changes so slowly that often we have a recession and a recovery, and we just go right back to the same growth trend. But I don't think there's anybody, a serious person, who would argue against the thesis that the Reagan policy was sufficiently different uh, from the policies of the previous decade to change the growth trend, to not only get us out of the malaise of the 1970s, but to set the predicate for a period of sustained growth uh, that probably lasted to 2007. What has happened, especially in the last two years with the government takeover of health care, the government dominance of the automobile industry, the government uh, uh, dominance of uh, the health care industry, um, with a massive ex increase in expenditure, with the proposals uh, to dramatically change the labor laws, to raise taxes, to use regulations to implement a policy that even uh, Democrat office holders won't vote for, uh, that we, in all probability, have fundamentally changed the growth trend of the underlying economy. And so, whereas we had a Reagan premium for 25 years, we now have if you wanted to be uncharitable, an Obama discount. So I don't think America is better off today than it was when I left. Um, now, I'm not saying it's worse off because I left, <laughs> uh, but uh, we do have very serious problems. Now, I will say on the plus side that the last election showed a focus of attention among the American public that was stronger than I have seen in my lifetime. And uh, it, it may be that we have started to plant the seeds for the correction uh, that we need, in my opinion. And I saw it happen once. I saw it happen uh, in the early 1980s, and so it makes me optimistic that it can happen again. Yes, ma'am. you could tweak or rewrite the Graham-Rudman bill, and you like Corker's idea of focusing on spending, but we have a Congress, both sides, DZR's eyes, I don't care what your political affiliation is, that um, is resistant to really standing up 
and being held accountable, what would you tweak? What, how, what impact has NAFTA and GATT had on the global economy and jobs and, and stuff? In, what in impact has what had on NAFTA? NAFTA and GATT, that, and on the impact of the, our economy and jobs. And should we continue or do we continue to bail out Wall Street? Um, I think NAFTA has had a positive impact on American jobs. I think we are much better off because NAFTA was adopted. I believe trade creates freedom and opportunity, and I am for it. I also could never quite accept that as a free man, the government had any right to tell me who I, whose goods I could buy and whose goods, goods I couldn't. Now, they had a legal right, but they had no moral right. Um, so I am for NAFTA. I am certainly for the Colombian Free Trade Agreement, the Korean Free Trade Agreement, the Panama Free Trade Agreement. We have gotten way behind the rest of the world. Uh, and uh, I think it's very important that we promote trade and freedom. Um, I, I would have done things differently than Paulson had I been Secretary of the Treasury. Um, I think uh, deposit-taking institutions uh, required an action by the Treasury. I would have let AIG go broke. Um, I, uh, I, this bailing out firms based on interconnectivity d doesn't carry a lot of weight with me. Um, and. Um, Again, though, it's so easy when you're not there, when you didn't have to have a solution yesterday, when you're not in the heart of the crisis, to think you could do it better. Um, I think the plain truth is that most of the damage that we're suffering from today has come from congressional and executive action in the last two years far more so, and probably four. Uh, I don't know about five, but anyway, four or five, whatever, but highly concentrated in the last two, far more than in the, in the bailout or TARP or any of those things. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Uh, it's been a long time since, uh, it's Ann Stone, long time since your first race for Congress back in Texas that I was happy to work on way back when. Uh, Two-part question. First, you came under a lot of fire for the repeal of Glass-Steagall and the whole derivatives thing. But wasn't derivatives the real problem in, in escalating our, our uh, current crisis, really the revision of FAS 157, the rule where it took the value of derivatives from something to zero overnight? That's the first part of the question, totally unrelated. Second part, um, I haven't heard anything today at all from anybody uh, in terms of, they talk about cutting spending, but they don't talk about what kinds of spending actually have the multiplier effect, actually do help the economy, and certainly uh, government spending is not has a smaller multiplier than the uh, private spending. But that's something we should be emphasizing what is the multiplier, you know, what will multiply, and encouraging the economy in that direction. Okay, let me, 
let me try to do, I think I'll remember the spending one, so let me do the, the Graham Leach Bliley Glass-Steagall first. I, I guess people assume that because the law is named after me that somehow I feel some obligation to defend it. I don't get a royalty on it. Uh, if I thought it had been part of the problem, I would say so. Uh, it's not me. It's part of the body of work that I did, and I am perfectly fallible. Having said that, I would have to tell you I see no evidence whatsoever to substantiate the claim that allowing competition among banks, security companies, and insurance companies created the problem. It's very instructive, I think, that while Obama made this a big issue in the campaign, that when they wrote their bill, and they could have written any bill they wanted to write, and it's pretty obvious by looking at what they wrote, but uh, the only change they made in Graham Leach Bliley is they made uh, they brought companies that are deemed to be uh, a systemically significant under the law so that they're under the jurisdiction of the Federal Reserve Bank. So they really expanded the law. So uh, obviously, either they didn't believe what they said or they changed their mind. In terms of spending, I don't want to oversimplify this thing, but I want to give you a totally honest answer. When people ask me where to start cutting spending, the answer is everywhere. Everywhere. There is not a government program that is not wasteful. There is not a government program that could not be substantially reformed. And there, there are very few that wouldn't benefit from being reformed. So if you were going to apply real tests, some of y'all will remember if you're old enough, that I used to apply what I call the Dickey Flat test. And this was named after a printer in my district who worked real hard. And when you, when you saw him, he always had ink on the end of his fingers. And I used to, the test was, you look at a program, you give it every benefit of the doubt. And then you think about Dickie Flat uh, and uh, how hard he works, open on Saturday. Um, and then you ask a question, is this program worth taking the money away from Dickie Flat to pay for it? And let me tell you, there are not a hell of a lot of programs that stand up to that test. Um, and I would start with Congress. Uh, I would start with congressional staffs. I'd move to the White House. There are plenty of cuts we can make in defense. Uh, I, we have uh, tremendous amounts of defense dictated by politics. Thank God the Soviet Union was worse, which is why they're gone. Uh, so, yeah, there's plenty of room in spending. I could live with a lot less government than we have today, a lot less government. Um, yeah. Well, let me try it right here since we uh, he's had one before. And then I'll come back for nobody. 
Uh, Senator Lee uh, talked about his constitutional amendment, and uh, we heard Senator Corker talk about uh, the CAP Act. And Senator Corker referred to the fact that Graham Redmond had eventually been waived by Congress. My first question is, what do you think about a constitutional amendment of some kind as a backstop to Graham Rudman? And second of all, you watched Graham Rudman rise and fall. Could you tell us a little bit about what changes you would suggest that Congress make if Congress uh, were to re, uh, reenact uh, something like Graham Rudman? Well, let me first make it clear. I would rather have Corker's bill than Graham Rudman. I would rather have a constitutional amendment than either. But in the world as it is now constituted, or at least in the Congress as it's now constituted, we're not going to get either one of those. I think we could probably get a Graham-Rudman-type structure again. What happened to Graham-Rudman was that it clearly had an impact, a substantial impact, but Congress and the president, Democrats and Republicans, were bipartisan about one thing, cheating on Graham-Rudman. Uh, and the biggest problem we had was the problem of how do you define an emergency? And uh, no part of the law was more uh, uh, fudge than that. And so I would start by not find defining an emergency. An emergency is when you can get 60 percent of both houses of Congress to vote for something. Uh, I wouldn't try to define an emergency, and I wouldn't even exempt wars. If you can't get 60 percent of both houses to vote for something, it's not much of a war. And do we want to suspend our requirement to balance the budget because of Libya? I don't think so. Uh, again, though, I never expected Graham Rudman to bring us heaven on earth. I thought it would be helpful. It ended up dying for two reasons, both of which were written into the bill. And I would write neither one of those into the bill now. Well, first is, if you had two successive quarters of economic downturn, and the second one was a war or national emergency declared by the president, well, we ended up in 1990 with both. And the best we could do was to rewrite the law and have it so that the new president on January the 20, was it first or third? January the 21st of, of 1993 could either re-trigger Graham Rudman or kill it. That was the compromise. And uh, obviously, uh, uh, Bill Clinton won the presidency, and in his first official act as president, he killed Graham Rudman. Um, so that, that's the whole story. Let's see. I'm supposed to go to, to 515, but I'll split the difference with you. Let me just take a couple of more and I'll quit. Yes, sir. And the guy in the back. I, I never hear anything about, I never hear anything about how this influences things, but, but the population of the United States was about 250 million back uh, then, and it's now 350 million. Do you ever reflect on it? From, does that affect economics at all, or is that just something that's happening off sort of in left field and uh, or right field and has nothing to do with economics? Well, I think it has a lot to do with economics. I think uh, 
we're blessed in that we have a growing population. I think one of the biggest economic problems in the world is the population bust. If we had been having this meeting 50 years ago, you might have had somebody up here saying that we've got to stop the growth in population. Uh, now, uh, in most developed, in well, in every developed country, the problem is in the other direction. So, yeah, I think it has a substantial impact. And I think other things being the same, the larger the population, the larger government, but I don't know that there's necessarily a linear or government spending. I don't know that there's necessarily a linear relationship. It's funny, everything gets more efficient except government. Uh, the private sector eliminated most white collar jobs. The government never eliminated any. Um, so yeah, I think it's a factor. And I would rather have a growing population than a declining population, I can assure you that. Uh, and if you've got uh, children, uh, urge them to have more grandchildren. Yeah, last one. Thank you, Senator. In the first six years of Bush, the, the Republicans we're spending water, excuse me, send, spending money like drunken sailors and, and, and Democrats. Uh, and then they, after they got tossed out and Nancy took over, uh, it was like a born-again Republican person who really believed in limited government and limited government spending. Do you have any confidence, or what is your level of confidence that these new born-again Republicans will actually be true to their uh, rhetoric of re actually reducing spending? Well... I believe we have, I think this is probably the best House of Representatives in my lifetime. And I have a lot of confidence in the younger, newer members. Um, I think they reflect uh, a voting public that was ready to stop the Obama program and ready to stop the spending spree. Uh, but again, I, I want you to go back to my point about the four-sided fort and the drawbridge. Freedom's bought on the installment plan. Every two years, it has to be repurchased. You can't, there's nothing we can do that is forever. Um, it, we have to continually fight for the things we believe in. And if we don't do that, they're going to die. Uh, God has not written somewhere that America has to be successful. It looks like it. I mean, if you look at our history, it looks as if God planned it and was determined it was going to happen come hell or high water. Uh, but I, there are things we can do that can undo that. And uh, I think we face some very real challenges today. And let me say, I'm for limited government, not just because of taxes, not just because of balanced budget. I'm for limited government because it produces an American that's proud and free and independent. Um, you can't have France's government and not become Frenchman. You, we can't have the America we love uh, 
and have the kind of America that we are now building in Washington, D.C. And it is going to change our children and our grandchildren and our countrymen. And to me, it's more about that. I care more about that than I do about taxes. Um, I don't want Americans to be kept people. I don't want my grandchildren to be taken care of. I want them to take care of themselves. Uh, I want them to be able to, if they make mistakes, and surely they will being my grandchildren, uh, I want them to pay for it. And uh, if they succeed, I want them to be able to benefit from it. And don't think you can separate those things out. I mean, the sort of arrogance of this administration was a belief that you could implement policies that were totally alien to the country, and yet we were going to continue to grow like we grew when Reagan was president, as if policies had nothing to do with success. Well, they do. Policies create success. America is not a rich and powerful, last sermon, America is not a rich and powerful country because Americans are brilliant people. Americans are pretty mediocre people. When you compare us with the rest of the world, we're pretty average people. What makes us great and successful is a system that lets ordinary people do extraordinary things. You take away that system, and you're going to affect America a lot. You know, maybe Germany can make a little socialism work, but we can't. We can't. We got to have full, unthrottled opportunity to be the country we want to be, to create the opportunities for every ever larger number of people. So this is a serious business we're talking about here. It's a lot more than about taxes. It's a lot more than about balancing the budget. It's about freedom. And you can't have unlimited government and unlimited opportunity. You have to choose. Uh, it's easy for me to choose. Uh, but Americans, you know, I think it's fair to say in 2008, Americans chose more government and less freedom. In 2010, they decided they'd made one hell of a big dangerous mistake. And they reversed it. What are they going to choose in 2012? I don't know. But that's where the vigilance comes. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, again, I want to thank Senator Graham. There was a question, would things have been better in Washington if he had stayed? And I think the answer is unambiguously yes. Because one thing that's overlooked, he had a great deal of influence on his fellow senators. First of all, he was the only real economist, really understood uh, good policies and could explain it to the ones who were less well-trained or less bright. And uh, that was always extremely helpful. We could always rely on him for that. And so again, your, your wisdom has not diminished with age. It has increased. Thank you, good sir. And if you go upstairs now, you can have, there's a little reception up there. And I thank you all very much for joining with us today on this important topic.